Last week, we began a series called The Crash Course on Progressive Christianity. Um, and we began the series, and really the reason we're doing this series is because for lots of us, we know what we no longer believe. We know what we can't affirm. We know what we, we've left behind. But being able to begin to reimagine our faith and articulate something different can be a bit of a challenge. And so in this series, I'm just trying to articulate how I have come to understand progressive Christianity. It's how Grace Point has kind of talked about progressive Christianity for a while now. Um, if you hear this series and you're like, ah, I don't really agree with that, that's okay. You can still be a part of our community. Um, that's, it's not, this is not a litmus test series. This is just a, I want to give you some language if you're trying to figure out how maybe to reframe, reimagine, reclaim the Christian tradition through a progressive lens. That's what I want to offer to you. Last week, we began the series by talking about the central difference between uh, kind of a more conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity the way we see it. Please, every time I say progressive Christianity, will you just assume I'm saying the way I see it? Is that cool? Can we just assume that it's, I'm not speaking for all progressive Christians everywhere? Uh, I'm just talking about how I have come to see and understand this idea. We began by talking about the central difference between conservative and progressive Christianity, which is uh, not what often people think about. People often think it's, well, progressive Christians are affirming. Of course, we're affirming. Progressive Christians don't believe in hell. No, we don't believe in hell. Progressive Christians you know, don't believe in substitutionary atonement. No, we don't believe in that. But that's not the central difference. The central difference is the starting point. Uh, conservative Christianity often begins with this. You were born separated from God. We don't begin there. We begin with this reality. Every human being was born inherently united with God. And that's a fancy way of saying every human being is born connected with God. You are not born disconnected from God. You are not born needing reconnection with God. You are born connected with God. So this week we put out a clip from that sermon on our social media. There were some people on the internet who disagreed. <clears throat> you know, a thousand or so, I mean, not many. Just a few. And one of the questions, and for some people, the disagreement was nasty, of course, it's the internet. But some people seem to have genuine questions, and one of the, which is why I wanted to talk about Jesus this week and what it means to be Jesus-centered, because one of the central questions we got when um, this went out was, okay, if we are born united with God, connected with God, what's the point of Jesus? Like, why did Jesus live? Why did Jesus die? What, what do we need Jesus for if we we're born inherently united with God. And that's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean to be Jesus-centered? Because we're progressive, but also we're Christian. Now, I understand that not everybody who's a part of Grace Point wears the label Christian, and that's okay. I'm not going to try to convert you to that label today. I'm not interested in converting anybody. Actually, it's not quite true. I'm interested in converting people who are part of a toxic Christianity to a non-toxic Christianity. I'm deaf, I'm coming for you. But... Um, <laughs> I'm not super interested in converting anybody else. Um, uh, that's, just not, that's just not what we're up to in the world. But I, I do want to talk about what it means for us as a, as a community to say we're a Christian church, that, that Christian, that word Christ is part of that. Christ is connected to Jesus. What does it mean for us to be Jesus-centered? And I think that the, the, even the idea, the name Jesus comes with some baggage, doesn't it? Does anybody, when you talk about Jesus, maybe, I love Jesus, can I just be honest about that. I love Jesus. Bigger fan than I've ever been in my entire life. But does anybody else, if you talk about Jesus anywhere outside of this space at Grace Point, you feel the need to qualify it with all sorts of, but not this Jesus and not this Jesus, because we've encountered some Jesuses who've behaved badly in the public square. And so what does it mean for us to say that we are Jesus-centered? 
I want to begin with something really important that addresses the question that got raised. For us, being Jesus-centered doesn't mean that we see Jesus as a means to an end. Much of the Christianity I was brought up in, Jesus was just that. Jesus was a mechanism through which we came into relationship with God. The whole point of Jesus wasn't the fact that he lived. It wasn't the fact that he taught. It wasn't the fact that he loved people, that he was inclusive, that he was compassionate. The most important things were that you believed some certain facts about Jesus's birth, that you believed he died because of our sin, that God needed Jesus to die to make us right with God, to somehow connect us with God, and that he rose on the third day, right? That's the most important thing. And even when you look at the ancient Christian creeds, what, what is left out is that, I think, the thing that makes Jesus significant, which is the life he lived, the human life he lived. For us to be Jesus-centered doesn't mean that for us Jesus is a means to an end or a mechanism that gets us somewhere. Jesus isn't the thing that gets us, like we don't believe in Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's not the point of the Jesus story. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's a Christian philosopher, he, he, called, uh, he said Christians often tend to be vampire Christians, just keeping with the spooky season theme. He said uh, that Christians often tend to be vampire Christians. Do you, you know what he meant by that? Um, that they, uh, well, one thing is that they glisten in the sunlight like diamonds. Um, <laughs> Any Twilight fans in the room? You don't want to admit that publicly. Oh, somebody does want to admit that publicly. Yes. Um, what, he didn't mean that. What he meant by vampire Christians is that there's this whole, like maybe billions of Christians who are, are sort of like this. We, we want Jesus for his blood. Speaking of the blood, you have to do the blood drive. I'm going to do it. That's going to be great. But we want Jesus for his blood. We need, we need a bloody Jesus because we need to be covered in the blood of Jesus because nothing but the blood will do, Right? Nothing but the blood will do. And that's sort of what many of us grew up believing about Jesus, that his life, yeah, believe, like trusting him, following him, all that stuff is, is, is bonus content. The main thing is having an intellectual agreement that you're a sinner, that Jesus wasn't, and that God demanded Jesus' death to somehow make you right with God. When you begin with inherent union, when you begin that we are born united with God, that takes the need for... Y'all, just think about this. If God actually needs to kill something to love you, we have way bigger problems than we could ever possibly imagine. If I am a better parent than God, we got issues. And so we don't begin there. We don't begin with the need for God to kill things to love us. We begin with the fact that we are loved. We, we, we do not see Jesus as a mechanism or as a means to an end. Second, and if I'm not already in trouble on the internet, this is gonna get me there. Um, Jesus, being Jesus-centered does not mean that we see Jesus as, our, as the one and only exclusive path to the divine. It's just not how we see it. I, I, to put it really clean, I do not believe that Jesus is the one and only way that human beings interact with the divine. Why? Because I've known human beings who are not Christian, who are really wonderful human beings who have a deep abiding relationship with their understanding of God. It's making their life better, it's helping them flourish, it's helping them be good humans in the world. Um, I do not think I need to convert them to my religion for that to be true. I do not think Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Now, I know what somebody's gonna say. I can already, like, if this, it's Wednesday right now and somebody's listening to this and they're in the chat like, John 14, six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, I'm aware of that Bible verse. I promise I've read it. Here's the thing. In, in, in the 9 a.m. service, the Gospel of John came up a lot in the conversation at the end. 
And, and what we have to understand about John is John is written in the language of devotion. What I mean is, um, have you ever, how many of you have read the Gospel of John? You ever notice how everything Jesus says in John basically isn't in any of the other Gospels? You ever wondered about that? Like in, in Mark, you have Jesus going, don't tell anyone about me, which is kind of the opposite. <laughs> and in John, he's going, I'm God. Why? Well, John was written much later, and John is essentially writing for his community, and John is taking the language of the community and putting it on the lips of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that is not the historical Jesus speaking, that is John speaking. That is John saying, for us as a community, Jesus is the way we contact the divine. Amen, me too. What that doesn't mean is that for everybody everywhere, Jesus is the only way they can contact the divine. And we, we intuitively recognize this because one of the questions that often comes up is, well, but what about people who've never heard of Jesus? It's sort of like the age of accountability conversation last week. We've painted ourselves into a corner. You have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven when you die. What about people who are never given the opportunity? We have no text to back this up, but they are grandfathered in. <laughs> they get in because God surely would not hold you accountable. But then there are other Christian theologians who will go, not so fast. I think they go to hell. What? God holds you accountable for information you were never given? I think deep within our theology, some of the pushback and questions to it and some of the weird things we construct to try to get around them should be letting us know we are creating a theology that's almost impossible to live and breathe under. And so I just want to say this. I don't think everybody needs to become Christian. I actually think we need faithful Muslims to be Muslim. And we need faithful Jewish people to be Jewish. And we need faithful Buddhists to be Buddhist. And we need faithful people in all of their traditions to be the best possible humans they can be in the world. And we need Christians who are behaving badly to be better. <laughs> but what often happens under this idea of Jesus being the exclusive way to God, it has become a pretext and a cover-up for all sorts of human atrocity. I mean, in reality, the whole idea of expanding the message of Jesus, the Great Commission, taking Jesus to all the world, really was just a cover-up for colonialism. Because what happened in all these places where missionaries from Europe came to the uh, Americas, and what did they do? They offered the Bible and they took the land, right? They offered doctrinal propositions and enslaved people. And they used the very scriptures they were giving uh, to other people as a proof text for why what they were doing was biblical. The idea of we need to take Jesus to all the places Jesus isn't. I, I get how people can read that from the scripture, but I don't think we understand the unbelievable human toll that has taken through human history. And so I think it's important for us to say, as progressive Christians, I have no desire to convert people from other religions to my religion. Uh, and actually, when I'm around people and engage with people in other religions, it actually enriches my experience of my own. Because when I can see them celebrating and being transformed by theirs, it allows me to come to my own with new eyes to be transformed and to celebrate my own tradition. All right? So I don't believe Jesus is an exclusive way to God. And the way I would put it is this. When the language of devotion, like in John 14, 6, when the language of devotion is literalized and becomes a litmus test, it can become a pretext for all sorts of terrible, traumatic, harmful ideologies. Are you with me? 
It's just how it's worked through human history. And so I think we just need to acknowledge that. I think it's important to say, I don't believe Jesus is somebody from somewhere else. But that's sort of how he gets portrayed, right? It's sort of, Jesus is almost like a Superman figure who he, he looks kind of like us, right? But he can fly, <laughs> right? Like at the end of the gospels, he kind of does fly. So there's that. Um, but this idea that Jesus sort of seems like us, but he's really not like us. He, he, he looks kind of human. He may seem like a human, but he's just not one of us. There's this other piece that being Jesus-centered doesn't mean believing necessarily a lot of doctrines about Jesus. I want to go further and say, um, being Jesus-centered, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, so don't let gasp. Being Jesus-centered doesn't necessarily mean believing in Jesus. I think it can mean something way different. And you can be Jesus-centered and not see Jesus as a white, American, capitalist, Christian nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ+, anti-women, pro-billionaire, believer in trickle-down economics, or that people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I would actually argue that that Jesus is one we definitely made up, and one we should definitely deconstruct. What is it, does it mean to be Jesus-centered then? For me, it begins with this. I believe Jesus is one of us. I believe Jesus is one of us. I believe Jesus was a human being. I believe that other human beings sense the divine in him. Absolutely. I believe other human beings believe that by being close to him, they in some way came closer to what the word God means. Absolutely believe that's true. I think Jesus was a prophet who preached a vision of God that centered the marginalized and challenged the way the Roman Empire and all empires before and since and ever will be challenged the way they've carved up the world. I don't believe Jesus being, being Jesus-centered means we believe in Jesus. I think being Jesus-centered means we believe Jesus, and there is a difference. For example, I believe in the idea that eating fried foods is bad for you. <laughs> who else believes in that idea? Just, just, I mean, I'm not talking about what your practice is. I'm saying, objectively, you know, eating less things dredged in flour would be better for your health. Let's see. All right, we got some conspiracy theorists in the room. Like, I'll believe it when I see the data. You know, like, no, like, it's bad for you, right? I believe in that idea. But if you look at the way I live my life, I don't believe it. Because I love a good chicken tender. Amen? Amen? We just became Pentecostal over chicken tenders. Was it Jesus? No, it was deep fried chicken that got us there. You see, the there's a difference in, in believing in something as an idea, as a doctrine, as a, like, yeah, 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 I believe in all these things. There are Christians all over the world this morning gathering in church, assenting to things that they actually probably don't believe. But their belonging is so tied to it that we believe in it. And here's the difference. Believe, believing Jesus means taking Jesus so seriously that we wrestle with what he taught and how he lived and we seek to embody it. Believing Jesus means that we work on loving our neighbor as ourselves, an idea that has been largely lost in Christianity in the modern world. 
It means we work on loving our enemies, an idea which has largely been lost in Christianity in the modern world. It means that we care about those who are marginalized, those who have been oppressed and pushed out. That we work and we use our energy and our resources and our creativity to figure out ways to bring people in, not push people out. Believing Jesus means that we take seriously his call to care for the least. It, it means that we think about how we use our resources, how we use our energy and creativity. It means that we don't respond to people the way maybe, anybody else have this trouble, like you have the most creative, awful things to say back to people on the internet and you just, like, you, you don't do it, but you really want to. Anybody else just have that kind of, thank you, a couple people, yeah. It means we take it so seriously that, no, I actually don't want to, I don't want to treat people that way. Believing Jesus is way different. When you are Jesus-centered, you actually believe him. You actually take seriously his teaching. And I, I think that being Jesus-centered means that we share his vision. And by the way, Jesus' vision was not for pie in the sky when you die. I think if we could go back in a time machine and sit down with Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, do you believe in an afterlife? I think he would say yes. I really think he would say yes. It was a new idea in Judaism. He seems to have embraced it. Is that what Jesus' mission and message was about? I don't think so at all. And if we put it in, I'm gonna put it in my words, but I think if I distill down what Jesus was up to and what he was doing, his vision was to work for a world for, in which humans flourished. Everybody flourished. I think that's what Jesus was up to in the world, trying to create a movement that allowed everybody, even the, the most marginal and forgotten person, to be brought in so that they could thrive and flourish as God's beloved children. I think that's what Jesus was doing in the world. I think Jesus ends up being executed for his, uh, his message and his mission, not because uh, God's wrath needed to be satiated. I think Jesus died not because of divine wrath, but because of human wrath. Because from the beginning of time, we humans have been reaching out for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding who lives and who dies, because Jesus ended up on the wrong end of an empire, just like people who have been inspired by his teaching have uh, ever since his life. Right? People like Paul, wrong side of the empire because they were inspired by Jesus' teaching. People like Dr. King on the wrong side of the empire because they were inspired by the teaching of Jesus. People working for justice today on the wrong side of society in the empire because they are advocating for human flourishing and for the justice for all of God's children. I do not think Jesus primarily exists as a means to an end for us. If, if there is any way, it's not to an afterlife, it's not to connection with God, it's to human flourishing. And so when I say we're Jesus-centered, this is what I'm talking about. That for me, I don't to speak for anybody else, but for me, I, I, I've tried to break up with Jesus for 20 years. Anybody else tried to break up with Jesus? He just keeps leaving his toothbrush at your house. You just can't, can't shake him. He just keeps popping up like a bad penny. Like, there's Jesus again. I, and here's what it was for me, is I realized my, my deconstruction process I was deconstructing all of the theology around Jesus, but what began to emerge as I sort of moved away generations and millennia of doctrine and dogma was this human life 
that was so powerful and so transformative, that was such a healing presence and even a divine presence, not because he's from somewhere else, but because he had opened himself up to reality in profound ways, and, and he sought to live from a place of honesty and genuineness and, and uh, compassion, that, that this life I did not want to move away from. I wanted to move closer. Somebody who would rather bleed for his enemies than cause his enemies to bleed. My God, I want to be that person. I am not currently that person. <laughs> Is that for me or you? <laughs> but God, I want to be that person. I do. And every time I try to move, a, I could leave Christianity way before I could leave Jesus. Because I've found that so often the religion we've built around him was not the religion he had. The religion he had was centered on this abundant understanding of God and we've created a religion of scarcity. We're centered in a God who hears the cry of the oppressed and for too long the church has tried to silence the cries of the oppressed. It's built on an understanding that with God and each other, we can actually change how things work. And not 300 or so years after his life, we erected monuments and cathedrals and religion that obscured and silenced his message. So for me to say I'm Jesus-centered, it means I want to get back as best I can to hearing the voice of this human being who called for a just and generous world and I want to join him in making that world a reality right here, right now. And I, I want to open it up for some conversation. I cut out a bunch of stuff I said at nine because it went way too long and I, was, I rambled way too much. Um, but I want to show you this. this is a, I've used this quote, and every time I talk about Jesus like this, I'll probably use it, so no apologies. But I love it. It just, oh, it's so beautiful by Frederick Buechner. In the last analysis, you cannot pontificate but only point. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing. Can we just begin there? What's humility? I can't prove anything. Like, we just totally wiped out apologetics, by the way. Like, this idea, I'm going to defend the faith. If your faith needs defending, we're probably already in trouble. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove it. But there is something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. And I can't prove a thing, <laughs> but there have been so many times on this journey that I've felt that last clause so deeply that I've been carried. And whether that was being carried by a community people of people who have been the hands and feet of Jesus in my life, whether that was uh, being carried by the sense that when the work is hard and difficult and challenging and uh, that you, you have this sense that you're not alone and that the weight of whatever cross it is you're trying to bear, you're not carrying it alone. But that has been my experience. And that is why time and time again, I'll keep, I, 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 may, I may jettison most theological doctrines and categories in Christianity, but the one that I cannot let go of, or maybe the one that will not let go of me, is that this human life of Jesus is the way in which I find the divine. It's not the way everybody does, and that's okay. It's the way I do. Can you imagine? Um, I tell my kids pretty much every day, 
that they're the best kids in the world. All the time. And I sometimes tell them individually that. I hope they never talk to each other about it. <laughs> that could lead to some awkward conversations at home. Dad said I was the best. No, Dad said I was the best. Can you imagine if I started writing about it, putting decals on my car about it, going to places where people are just trying to have a good time with signs about it, like going to all the playgrounds where people are hanging out with their kids and going, your kids are not as good as my kids. Objectively, here's why. My kids are cuter. I don't care what you say. They are. They're funnier. They're the next Einstein. You know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine if I literalized that to the point that I was going around and trying to shove the greatness of my children down other people's throats? But that's not what I mean when I say that. It's not a competition. When I tell my kids they're the best, what I mean is, in the language of devotion, I am unbelievably grateful that in this blip of time, I get that our timelines coincided and I get to be your dad. Best gig ever. But when you literalize the language of devotion, it becomes absurd. How many of you in the room are parents? How many of you think your kids are better than my kids? How dare you? I thought we were on the same page. No, of course you do. God bless you for it. If you didn't, I would be worried. I think Jesus is the best, but it's not a competition. And what I care about is human beings flourishing and finding wholeness and healing and, and accessing the best parts of what it means to be human. And however they're doing that, I celebrate them. This is not a competition, but my God, I feel carried sometimes. And so for us as a church, not everybody in our church is Christian. We have atheists, agnostics, uh, all sorts of folks who are part of the Grace Point orbit. But as a church, we're a Christian church, and that's something that matters to us, being centered in the life and teachings of this person of Jesus. Not, in, not because it's the only way, but because for us, it is proven to be the way that is our mother tongue, how many of you speak more than one language? I'm so impressed. I wish I, I, wish I did. I, I know I, I had, <laughs> I took four semesters of German. Why? That's a great question. Nobody came to me in high school and was like, you will not use this. Uh, all I remember are the curse words. Um, but I bet you have, if you're, you know, you're multilingual, there's a language you default to when you stub your toe. Right? There's a language you default to when you pray. French. French. <laughs> uh, yeah, why? Because we have mother tongues. We have, we have the languages we think in, we dream in, we pray in. That's what Christianity is for me. I love learning bits and pieces of other languages. It's beautiful. I can converse with my Buddhist friends and see the beauty in their tradition and what it teaches. It's not my tradition. Christianity is my tradition. Because I keep coming back to this Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, there, there, there will be folks who say, well, that's just a weak kind of Christianity. That's okay. I, I follow a weak savior. Um, he got crucified and he turned out okay. So uh, th this idea of we need this strong, abrasive, no, that actually runs in the face of the person of Jesus who is gentle but fierce. And I want my face to be gentle 
but I also want it to have a fierceness toward injustice. Um, so with that, I just want to open it up. We did this last week. Um, so what, here's what happens every time. There's a lull of silence and awkwardness. Can we just pretend we already did that? <laughs> is that cool with everybody? We're just going to pretend the awkwardness is over. So if you have a question, you have something you want to add, something you want to say, um, we're paying attention to online as well. Uh, if you're online and you have something you'd like to add or ask or something. Does this mean it's on? I think it means it's on. Let's find yeah. out together. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just very appreciative of uh, this place and uh, this space and the opportunity to be here and you for being vulnerable and encouraging us to um, be vulnerable as well and just because we're all in this process together mm -hmm. and just knowing that it's okay to question things and we don't have to feel guilty anymore or ashamed. And that's just beautiful. And I'm just grateful. Oh, thank you. You know, I think good religion, uh, good faith, whatever, is where shame goes to die. And so that's what we're trying to do here. Um, don't cry. Okay, I'm gonna cry. Um, it's okay, you can cry. As a missionary kid, <laughs> hardest part of deconstruction is thinking that my parents spent their entire lives working for something that I don't believe in and that my brother is currently doing the same. <clears throat> How do I... Well, I can't. I can't have those conversations at home. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for in the service that I did overseas was that converting people was not, not the end goal, even though I had to say that sometimes in certain circles because I had to define missionary as something that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And what I was really doing was cross-cultural ministry to help people flourish mm -hmm. in water and food and agriculture and... And sometimes I was questioned on, well, when do you tell them about Jesus? I said, I don't. Mm -hmm. I live it. Mm -hmm. And that's not always understood in the tradition I grew up in. Yeah. And it's where yeah. it's my deconstruction point of tension. So can I just make two comments? One... Um, because I, you know, there have been generations of people I love dearly who have, I think, said things about God and Jesus that made the world worse, ultimately, and brought shame and harm to people. I also realized they were doing the best they could with the information they'd been given, right? Like, you know, uh, if, if my pop, who's been gone 30 years, were to hear this sermon, we would have a conversation after. <laughs> he would not have said amen at any point. Um, but uh, he was doing the best he could. He, he was being genuine. He was being, and he, you know, uh, surely the work of missionary work was, was party to colonialism, but I don't think every single missionary understood they were doing that. I think a lot of them thought they were being very genuine and trying to share the message of Jesus. Number two, the work you did, uh, not of converting people, 
Because you know what often happened in these this situation of colonialism is, is you know, um, an empire would go into a place where they were self-sustaining, would uh, essentially say to them, hey, you just grow sugarcane and we'll supply you with your food. And then when it's all said and done, they no longer are self-sustaining and they're dependent on the empire to supply them with their food. Being able to go in and say, like, hey, actually, that's terrible. We should go back and like get out of your way and let you do what you know how to do, which sounds like the work you were doing. It's kind of a, an untelling of what came before you. And I think one of the most uh, loving things we can do is not to just prop up what our ancestors did when it was bad, but it's to try to do something different. And it's not only loving to the people around us, it's loving to them in their memory. Because our family tree brought this into the world. This is what I love the language Paul uses, that in, like, the, the, and he uses Adam as a symbol of humankind, but Adam is where the problem started in a human. It's in a human, Jesus, for Paul, where the problem gets rectified. And it's, I think that's exactly what I'm hearing from you. And so in some ways their work, can, their work is being transformed through your work. Yeah. Do we have anything on, uh, real quick, do we have anything online? Nothing yet? Okay, go for it. Hey, my name is Steven, and I have a question about Jesus' divinity. Yeah. To kind of qualify the question. So, uh, so as an academic um, Christian, you know, going through ministry school and things, we, we learn a lot of theologies and coming out of that, deconstructing them. And, and, and you've talked about some of those today, but one, I just have a question. What do you do with, with Jesus divinity in the sense of, is that a non-essential doctrine? Is that a doctrine that you can say, I don't have to believe he was the magical unicorn son of God? Or like when I think of the Nicene Creed and, you know, that's like 325 AD and that whole thing was about saying, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that Jesus was co-equal with God. That was the big thing that they were wrestling with in this pre-millennialism. And so they had their own theological squabbles in the day and people were arguing who they believed Jesus was then. Sure. And so I feel like as time goes on, we're always reflecting and reevaluating sure. and looking. Yeah. So the question is, can I live a Jesus-centered life and I don't have to believe he was, I no longer believe in magic points removal on the cross. I can yeah. set that down. But do I have to believe in three days rise again, Jesus? Can I just look at the teachings and be Jesus-centered in a community, but not have to hold to the magic son of God? Is that an essential doctrine I can deconstruct? Yeah, um, um, how, how do you tenderly evaluate that in a progressive lens that's healthy? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, we, I think we, we should, and, and y'all got like an hour and a half, um, <laughs> we have to detach the language of Son of God from being about Jesus' biology, because Son of God in the Greco-Roman world and Jewish world meant two things. One, in the Jewish world, it meant that you were the rightful Jewish king. So it's a, it's a claim of kingship. It's not a claim of biology. Um, there were all sorts of sons of God. Read the Psalms. Uh, the, the coronation Psalms call the king the son of God. In the Roman world, Caesar was the son of God. So these are political titles. These are not biological titles. 
Uh, second of all, you can believe whatever you want, right? Like that's the beauty, that's sort of the beauty of uh, being able to say, I'm, attra- I'm, I'm drawn and attracted to Jesus. Do I have to believe X, Y, and Z? Of course, of course not. Um, what I think about the claims of divinity is, do I think Jesus was divine? Yeah, but so are you. And if anything, Jesus is, what makes Jesus remarkable is his ordinariness. It's that he's one of us. He's one of us who is aware of God and aware of his relationship with God in ways that led him to dramatic commitments, commitments that led up to him giving his life and uh, for what he believed would be true. But I don't know, I don't think, I'll just be honest with you. Um, I am not really like compelled by the Christ of faith. Like this whole idea that there's this Christ of faith we have to have all these doctrinal beliefs about just doesn't, I don't get out of bed for that. I'm compelled by the Jesus of history. And I get why his disciples would say after his life was over that there was this Easter experience for them where they realized that the meaning of Je- that Jesus had been raised up and the meaning of Jesus had been brought into the meaning of God because they encountered God through Jesus. So have I, right? But I don't think that's true for everyone. I don't think you have to believe a certain thing about Jesus to be Jesus-centered. I think that the, being compelled by the te- teachings of Jesus, being compelled, I mean, we have folks at Grace Point who would say, I'm atheist, I'm agnostic. I love the way we talk about the teaching of Jesus here and I want to be that kind of person. Absolutely, good for you. There are probably people in this room who are like, no, I really, I really believe that there's some sort of difference in him and he had some sort of divinity that I don't, okay, great, that's okay too. How I, I think that that ultimately ends up being a personal commitment or revelation or whatever. Um, the, the reality is, speaking historically, historians don't make claims on that, right? They, they just talk about the historical Jesus and here's what happened after. Um, so no, I, don't, I don't think there's a specific thing you have to believe. The thing that makes somebody a Christian, and I'll just keep saying it, the thing that makes someone a Christian is not that they believe or adhere to any specific set of doctrines. The thing that makes somebody a Christian is that they say they're Christian. They want to be Christian. They choose to be Christian. Nobody else gets to tell you how you identify, which is why every time somebody tells me, you're not a real Christian church, I was like, but it's in the name. A progressive Christian church. Like, we're there. We're Christian. So Christ- Christianity is not a thing. It's, it's, I said last week, there's no such thing as Christianity. There are Christianities. And so I think that's true. Adam, you got anything? Well, the online community is completely satiated. They just don't need... Hi, my name's Mary. My thing is, and I actually was just telling somebody this last week when they were saying, like, how do you not throw all of it away? And I went up to them afterwards and I said, my thing was like years later, I realized that like my problem was never really with God. And like that was the biggest revelation for me was through all of it, I did kind of like walk away and just like stay on my own and not go to any churches or talk about it or anything. But I still felt this pull. Mm -hmm. I still felt this, you know, like, desire of just knowing more and having a closeness and I felt that closeness with God and I realized that my big problem is people <laughs> that you know it yeah. And <laughs> yeah. me the person sitting at the wall by that you know house plant has a problem with people <laughs> but that's the part that I have the hardest 
thing like processing and dealing with and like I have trauma in my life that adds to it but it's like uh, I, I have absolutely loved coming here and I love watching everyone and how they interact and I interact a little but that's I think the biggest hurdle for me and what I've seen with a lot of people is once they realize like oh man I do actually like still really want to know more about God and spirituality and stuff but people just terrify me yeah like what would be some of your advice to overcome that a little bit that, you know, it's like we realized that it wasn't God, it was people, but yeah, you're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there are billions of them. Um, um, well, I think first of all, acknowledging that you've had traumatic experiences is really important um, and taking that seriously and um, being a little self-protective is, I think, good when you're like starting to try to trust again, especially in a context um, of religion. I mean, we have folks who come to Grace Point all the time. Um, and uh, when I talk to them, it's like, hey, this, I, I've been through so much at church. I'm, I'm not ready to fully. I mean, we have people who, there's sort of this progression sometimes where people will watch online for a little bit silently. And then I'll get like a random email that's like, hey, I exist. Not really ready for anybody else to know that yet. And then they jump in the chat. And if they're local, they'll show up in person. And I think that there's a, that's a self-care. That's a self-care. Um, so I think it, it is as you feel safe and comfortable, um, knowing that in this community we, prior, we, we value and prioritize creating as safe a place as we possibly can, that you sort of, as you're watching people interact, maybe you, you take a little risk every now and then and say hi to somebody or... But I think I, I do want to acknowledge and say that, like that, that's not you're, you're not being antisocial. You have real reasons, and those those real reasons matter, and we care about them. Um, and so, you know, uh, I would even say that it's, a, it's sort of a sacred process being able to open yourself up to people in community. Um, so I would just be patient with yourself and take whatever baby steps you feel safe taking. A couple more, yeah. Um, so I don't come here very often, so this is probably one of like the top three most commonly asked questions. I hope it's not, but I don't know too much about the Bible, so I've had to go online and look up quotes in the Bible about hell and then go to 20 top Bible verses about hell. But um, <laughs> So I, I remember you talking about how, like, I don't remember which book is that what's called like a book in the bible like john is that like an example of okay so i don't know um that one's in there okay um but there's like tons of different books on this reliable website about um <laughs> like all kind of saying the same thing about hell and to me hell seems very unjust and like not it seems contradictory to a lot of the things in the bible but i know about you is that you really enjoy reading the bible and like don't tell anybody. All right. <laughs> Just but, between us. Um, but, like, it seems like people will, t like, the more progressive Christians will take things from the Bible. But I, 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 I question, like, how you look at that and then also this. And then, like, yeah. I don't believe that you're, like, picking and choosing. But Oh, I, for sure we are. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, so, so are conservative Christians. 
Right, like everybody's, everybody's picking and choosing because the Bible isn't speaking with one voice. It's a, you know, a collection of texts from different authors over about a thousand year period. They don't all agree on everything. That's the, one of the differences is my conservative siblings would say, no, no, the Bible speaks with one voice on everything, which works until you read it. And then you realize that's not the case. So for example, hell, um, you know, uh, it's not at all in the Hebrew scriptures. There's one reference in the book of Daniel, which is a late text to eternal damnation or destruction or something like that. But in the New Testament, the word hell, um, late, in some later books, you'll get Hades that appears. But the word rendered hell in the gospels is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual place, like a physical location outside of Jerusalem where in the Hebrew scriptures, some of the Judahite kings sacrificed their, their children to other gods in fire. And so it took on this connotation. Some people say in Jesus' day it was a garbage dump. Some people disagree with that. But it's sort of like when I read Jesus, you know, people say, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. Never mentioned it because I don't think he necessarily believed in it. Um, what Jesus talks about, though, is he warns people about Gehenna. I, bless you. Um, I think he warns people about Gehenna because I think he's using it as a metaphor to say, Remember, the Gospels are written after 70 CE when Rome had destroyed Jerusalem. But the Gospels are talking about things before 70 CE. If the historical Jesus talked about Gehenna, I think he was saying this. If we keep going down the path we're going, our entire place is going to end up like that. It's going to be a place that is cursed and destroyed and nobody wants to be in. Um, so I think he's using a, a physical place that people would have known about as a way of saying the whole place can become that if we keep going down the path we're on. I don't think the historical Jesus ever talked about hell in the way, actually hell was invented by a guy named Dante. Uh, I mean, honestly, that's where we have the idea of hell fully coming uh, into what we have it today. And there's a book by him, John Sweeney, called Inventing Hell um, that is great on this topic. Um, but yeah, we all pick, I mean, those, I, I'm honest. I'll pick, yeah, I pick and choose. There are verses in the Bible I don't like because I don't think they reflect the best possible uh, way to do it, right? Um, one more, and then we're gonna we'll, we'll wrap up because we're running short. Yes, hi there. Hi, is it work? Okay. So I grew up Church of Christ, um, and uh, yeah. So I feel like an apology is in order, and I don't know I why. Know. It was it was really intense, and one thing that they talked about. 24-7 was heaven and hell. It was our main thing. We were the only ones going to heaven. Um, we, you know, baptism, all the things. And one thing that has scared me my whole life and still scares me to this day, even though I've deconstructed, is the thought of eternity. So it scares out of me because how can something just go on forever? If, if heaven is what we've been told, which probably not, but if it is, that we are just going to be there forever. The earth's going to explode, the rapture, all the things. Yeah, and none that of that's we're, real. Right. But that we're going to be there forever and never ending. And my brain can't comprehend. It's one big, long worship service. Right. So what does that look like? Because I'm telling you, it's you like a You think you're looking at your fear. clock right now. Imagine if we were at year one bajillion. Right. You're like, is this guy ever going to wrap this up? So is eternity real? Like what it, like my, I mean, I'm 32 and still scared. Um, is eternity real? I have no idea. That's the best. I mean, like, I hadn't been there yet. Um, when people ask me what I believe about the afterlife, I typically will ask them what day it is because that'll affect the answer because it changes because it's an unknowable. Um, I do feel like there is, I mean, speaking scientifically, 
Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. We're energy. I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I do think if there is such a thing as eternity, and if uh, I do not think it's one long, unending worship service, I think even God would be like, this is a bit much. Um, my assumption could be wrong. My assumption is that if there is life beyond this life, if there's something beyond this, um, that it's going to be better, more generous. Yeah, but it's going to be, I think our best images would fall short. And I'm hopeful for that. At the end of the day, I mean, I, I think there are lots of compelling things, right? Like, do we just make more stuff? Right? We die and we get kind of recycled. I think it's a valid way to look at it. We just die and there's nothing. I think that's a valid way to look at it. Do we die and we somehow get brought back into the source that brought us here to begin with? Maybe. Maybe. I just, Marcus Borg, one of my favorites. I'll end with this. Marcus Borg, one of my favorite scholars. Uh, he passed in 2015. But he had this quote. I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it. But he said, is there an afterlife and what will it be like? I haven't a clue. What I do believe is that the same God that has held us up, he uses the word buoyed, like a buoy in the water, you know, it's being held up. The same God who held us up in this life is the same God who will hold us up through this life and to the other side of this life. And he said, I believe that very deeply. I don't know what it means. And that's kind of where I'm at. It's an, it's an unknowable category. But I deeply believe that the God I have known and experienced in this world will translate with me through whatever comes next. And I just trust, because that's all we can do. Everybody who talks about the afterlife is giving you their best guess. Um, and I think what that, for me, what conversations around the afterlife do is it brings me back to this moment and what I want to do in the very short little window of time I get in this iteration on this timeline, because <laughs> you know there are more timelines. Um, <laughs> like, what do we get to do now and I really do think eternity, if that's a thing, will take care of itself when we get there. Mm -hmm.